From CAFE, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. How you doing, Ann? How are you, Preet? So up until very recently, I, I had a perfect day count of how long we've been on lockdown. And now I can't remember. It's like day 364, 321. <laughs> I, just, I just know I read all the articles saying it was more than 100 days. And that's when I sort of lost count. But yes, it's been it's been 105 days last Thursday, I believe. Okay. So we have a lot of things to discuss. And the big news, we have a couple of Supreme Court things to talk about. We've got Michael Flynn to talk about. I guess what's on uh, at the top of people's minds as we record this on Tuesday morning with more Supreme Court decisions that could be handed down at any moment. So apologize if they happen after we finish taping. But there was a big abortion decision that came down yesterday that you and I actually talked about after the oral argument. And, you know, we checked the date. And it's very funny. We talk about how long we've been, you know, dealing with the pandemic. We talked about this case, June Medical Services, dealing with the right to abortion and restrictions on abortion on March 10th. It's the last wow. time we did a podcast. That was last time we were together. Be- yeah. I, I'm not sure we were. T- I think you had, you Mm-mm. had been kind of foreshadowing. No, that was I. I was foreshadowing it. Right? But, yeah, but we had did agreed we, we would do person? one. Yeah. Yes, we were going to do one last one, and that was one. Of, it was the only thing I did in person that week. Um, and then that was going to be our last one. We were going to go remote, and that's the day we got our microphones to bring them home and set up here. And here we are. Yeah. So. I, you know, I went back and and I, I know you did too, and looked at what we what we said to see if we predicted fairly. I don't think we did, you know, very strong prediction, but some people are surprised. Five four decision, Judge Roberts siding with the majority to strike down this restriction in the state of Louisiana, uh, one of these so called trap laws, trap standing for targeted restrictions on abortion providers, and as we discussed in in early March. This is one of those laws that on its face is supposed to be something that's in favor of the health of women seeking an abortion. In this particular case, a requirement that doctors who are performing the abortion have admitting privileges to a hospital within 30 miles. And as we talked about last time, it's about the same kind of issue. In fact, some people call it the identical issue that was considered in a prior Supreme Court case from just four years earlier called Whole Women's Health. And it was the same kind of restriction in Texas. And so Justice Roberts, who dissented in the 2016 case, in other words, came on the side of upholding the restriction in Texas, voted the opposite way this time. Why did he do that? So first of all, I, I want to take issue a little with you saying that our predictions weren't strong because I think our takeaway was basically that it was virtually the same law that was passed in Louisiana is virtually the same as the law that was passed in Texas and that was struck down by the Supreme Court. Obviously, Justice Kennedy was still on the court at that time. And so the um, balance between liberal and conservative was different. But, you know, all things considered, like, basically, it's a it's almost an identical law in many ways. If anything, the impact that it would have in a place like Louisiana, where you would basically have one abortion provider for an entire state and certain terms of a pregnancy where there could be no legalized abortion because of the way Louisiana is set up and, and that that medical practice. Basically, I think what we were saying is it should it should come out that it would be exactly the same. And actually, no, but, did I we, would go, but did we predict that? I don't know if Look, we predicted it, but I, I think we basically said. 
Let's no, pat ourselves not, on the back. I'm not patting ourselves on the back, but I would <laughs> no, sort of argue. I, here's what I would argue. Right. I would argue, like, the court shouldn't have even taken this case, right? Like, and yep. I sort of want to reframe yes, this national exactly. conversation because, like, the conversation's like, oh, Roberts has come to the center. Roberts has not come to the center. The court shouldn't have even taken this case. And we should go into a lot more detail about why it's actually a very bad decision, I think, for the long term for women's for women's right to choose. But like, like I, I do want to just sort of say, like, on the merits, on the law, and here's why. Basically, for the reason Robert says, precedent stare decisis, the rule is that the court follows prior prior rulings, right? That the court doesn't doesn't change its position. I mean, we all know that there are times where the court does overturn prior positions, but as a general rule, it should follow precedent. This is only four years old, and that's what Roberts ultimately says, is that this law is very much the same as the other. He says, I disagreed with that holding, the finding in the 2016 opinion, Whole Women's Health, um, but he, which was also authored by Justice Breyer, so was June Medical Services. But he basically says, I disagree with it, but this is, this is the way the law works. Starry decisis, I'm going to go with you. Can we also just step back for a second, Preet? Because I sort of feel like part of an understanding of this is just to do, like, is it okay if we do, like, two minutes on the history of Roe and the following cases? Or do we, yeah, do we not have is, time? Two, minute, okay. two, minutes is, two minutes is more than sufficient to talk about the history of Roe. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is, by the way, look, this is not what we do, do in law school. <laughs> if you can do it in two minutes, I will, I will, I will pat you on the back. Um, and by the way, people should get like continuing legal education credits for for these overviews. Okay, so Roe versus Wade finds that under the due process clause of the United States Constitution, under the Fourteenth Amendment, that there's a right to privacy. The Supreme Court says in Roe, it divides a woman's pregnancy into trimesters: first trimester, pre viability, it allows the right to an abortion. Second um, trimester basically says a state can put regulations in place that basically go towards maternal health, the health of the mom. In the third trimester, a state can pass regulations that prohibit it for cases where, except as long as there are exceptions for when an abortion is necessary to save the life or health of the mother. So that's Roe. Then you come to Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which upholds the right to privacy in the due process clause of the Constitution, basically also upholds Pennsylvania provisions that allow for restrictions on a woman's pregnancy. And it gets rid of the sort of trimester idea and creates this new standard of the question at any point in the pregnancy is whether the regulations pose an undue burden. And they, the court defines it as an undue burden is a substantial, quote, substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attends viability, basically when the fetus could ostensibly live on its own outside of the womb. That opinion basically changes the standard really to this undue burden. Then you have whole women's health in 2016 with the Texas law that we're talking about. The court finds that law is unconstitutional. Again, that law required doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges at a local at local hospitals and for clinics to have hospital-grade facilities. And so the court, in the Justice Breyer opinion, basically says it strikes it down and it it changes the test a little bit. So it's not just undue burden. It also looks at whether there are any health benefits for women and whether it whether the laws pose a substantial obstacle. So it brings the benefits to women question in, as well as the obstacles or something that is an undue burden, in part, I think, to look at, you know, is there any benefit to the to the women from these laws versus obstacles that are created by the laws? Now we come to June medical services, where Breyer essentially repeats that test, where he's he's looking at what are the benefits, 
what are what is the burden? And the decision is ultimately, you know, for I would call it sort of four one four, meaning Breyer and the liberal wing of the court vote in favor of overturning the Louisiana law. Roberts is the one that gives them the fifth vote so that there's a majority. That's his concurrence, it's called. He ends up having what I would argue is the controlling opinion because he's the one that puts them over the top, right? Without Roberts, it's only four votes. And four votes, the conservatives on the court, including the newest appointments, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, are firmly in the camp of overturning Roe, I would argue, and overturning the sort of, you know, we can have a longer conversation about that at some point, but they would, they would, they would have upheld the Louisiana law in this particular case and allowed these restrictions. Um, and so now we sort of, I think, come to the point of, is Roberts a hero or a devil or something in between? I think Roberts, look, you know, I keep thinking back over the last few weeks to his confirmation hearing when, as I mentioned before, uh, I was working on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and there was a lot of debate among the entire Democratic caucus, should you vote for him or against him. 22 Democratic senators voted for Justice Roberts to be the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And, you know, he, he represented himself to be somebody who believes in the institution and is guided by principles rather than, you know, a safe vote for any particular social cause that comes before the court. There was some dubiousness about that. I think at least in the last couple of weeks, a decent argument can be made that he, you know, his, he's no liberal. He hasn't come over to some progressive side, but he seems to be a little bit more, you know, honest about the principles to which he adheres. And this is a striking example of that, right? On the substance, we know that he thinks that the regulation is constitutional, is uh, something that could be upheld and is reasonable under the prior tests. And we know that because he voted that way. He uses a very powerful vote in the 2016 Texas case to say exactly that. The only thing that's changed since 2016 and 2020 in his mind is he lost the, the fight on the 2016 case. And having lost the fight and having been someone who has claimed that he subscribes to the principle of stare decisis and precedent, he felt he had no choice but to vote the other way on that ground. I, I don't think, his, I don't think his, his view of doctors needing to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals has changed. It's that. And look, there are going to be future cases in which, I don't have any off the top of my head, where that principle is going to cause him to vote the other way. It was not a liberal principle or a, conser or, or a conservative principle with respect to ideology. It's an institutional principle that you adhere to stare decisis. Now, the other political fallout of this is, if we can do politics for one second, because, you know, a lot and of- And I want to come back stake, on the stare yeah, decisis after politics, yeah. Is Susan Collins- this moderate, I guess, senator who's who very just concerned didn't know. In she didn't know how well, Kavanaugh Well, she voted for vote. Brett Kavanaugh. And, <laughs> yeah. and she said, and one of the bases on which she voted for Brett Kavanaugh was to say that Brett Kavanaugh assured her that he would respect precedent when it came to abortion rights. I think, I think he said that specifically. And guess what? He didn't do that here. And, yes. And, and, you, and you know he didn't do that here because there was another conservative justice, the chief justice, who literally on that basis— not on the substance, but on that basis, said, I got to vote this way. So I don't know what that means for for uh, Susan Collins. I don't know what it means for people's other predictions about the court. But that's not insignificant when we have an election coming up. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I also think that, you know, it defied um, logic that she really believed or that anyone really believed based on Kavanaugh's prior writings um, as a judge even and his sort of writings on abortion. It it defied belief, frankly, that he was going to do anything other than join, in my view, with the conservative wing of the court on trying to overturn Roe. And so, you know, uh, Collins, I, I'm... I think should have been more skeptical at the time, frankly, and should not have believed it and and clearly was looking for a hook, I think, um, to be able to say that she supported him. But I, you know, I have a, I I think that obviously she's going to be a target of opposition in her Senate race. And I I suspect that, you know, she will not win re-election, but, you know, I don't want to predict, I don't know. Um, And obviously the people of the state get to decide, but, but there are a number of places where I think she's been less than a leader and has just really sort of shown herself to lack political courage. Can we go back to stare decisis for a minute? Because I think there's a really interesting article in Slate by uh, Dahlia Lithwick, and I think it's worth reading for folks because she basically dispatches with this idea that Roberts is a moderate, that he's an, that he's a full institutional hero, right? That she sort of says, you know, he has some, he has a very good sense of the media. He has a very good sense of like the institution itself, having public confidence in the institution and also just sort of having things done correctly. And I, I think, you know, there's a great line at the end of the article where she basically says, like, look, the way that Louisiana did this is kind of the equivalent to, like, a kindergartner writing with green crayon on the wall. And, like, there's a way and a process that you have to follow if you're trying to do things like overturn Roe. And, frankly, it was also true in the DACA opinion, the the Dreamers case where Robert— And the census case. And the census case where Roberts—he didn't say, you can't do it. He said, you did it in a sloppy and bad way. You can't do it the way you tried to do it, right? You have to— Not even sloppy. Like, you have to be honest about your reasons, Yeah, you you have to be able to give a legitimate reason. Exactly. And so, like, he, so a lot of this, her read is a lot of this is him basically saying, like, you know, look, Louisiana literally walked in on the exact same thing. I mean, it couldn't have been more badly done in some ways. If you wanted to challenge, even with the change in the Supreme Court, but if you wanted to challenge the Texas, the whole women's health opinion, the way to do it is is probably not to come back on the exact same, the exact same law. Like it, you could imagine Roberts taking a different position if it was a different law, right? If there was a different restriction that he could make a different argument. Because the, the one thing I want to say about the two other quick points is that What Roberts basically says in his concurrence is that he does not like the balancing test that Breyer has put out in Whole Women's Health and in June Medical, that he thinks we should be going back to Casey, where the only question is, is it an undue burden? So whether or not the law provides, even if the law says it provides a benefit to women, whether or not that's true doesn't matter in Robert's mind. So you could have a completely protectual, completely political law. All Roberts wants to know is, is there an undue, you know, is there an undue burden? And what he said in joining Alito's dissent in the in the 2016 case, they basically were going to uphold the Texas law. And part of it is that they thought they basically were arguing there's no causation, like no direct link between the Texas law and the closing of abortion clinics. So, right, and I don't, obviously there's a huge correlation proving causation that one thing is directly caused, you know, causing the other. He was able to argue, Alito argued, like it could have been because of a cut in state funding. It could have been because of a decrease in abortion. And so 
I think what we should look for is another case is going to come forward. It's not going to be the same um, hospital admitting privileges law that we've now seen in Texas and Louisiana. It's going to be different. It may be done like by better. I mean, more consistently with the way that like Roberts and others think about, you know, having a a solid process and an argument for why it's not a burden. Um, And then I think we should look to Roberts to basically go back at least to Casey, if not, frankly, to overturn Roe. And so I see this this decision as a very bad decision. I think this is a bump where he just said, let this one go. This isn't the right one to take a stand on. But I, I agree very much with the sort of analysis of Dahlia Lithwick that like, not only is this not over, but it's a setup for a longer term, either going back to Casey and allowing all these restrictions to pop up that eventually, eventually gut Roe or just a full overturning of Roe. Yeah, I mean, we see that there are a number of justices who are perfectly prepared to revisit something that was settled by a very recent court, their own court, on the basis of the only change that's happened, which is new members of the court, or at least that's what it looks like. And so if these folks were prepared to grant cert, in other words, agree to hear the case, just three or four years after they've decided the exact same issue, it'll happen again and again. And you know, one, one thing I guess we don't have to spend a lot of time on because it didn't become an issue, but the standing issue, which is sort of, you know, a, a legal point that not a lot of people think about, you know, just because you have a law that says someone can't do something or a law that protects a particular right, as you know, if you went to law school, that only matters if there are actual human beings who the courts recognize have standing to bring the suit and to vindicate their rights. And as we discussed last time, one of the arguments made that I think Alito really, really believed was correct was that the abortion providers, these clinics, did not have standing to vindicate the rights of the people whose reproductive rights were were arguably being infringed, the women. And, you know, there are arguments that are not crazy. I don't buy them at the end of the day, that if you have an abortion provider able to bring a lawsuit on behalf of the person to whom they're providing the abortion, they're not exactly fully aligned. And the law is, you know, about what, you know, the law with respect to who has what's called third-party standing requires that there be a close relationship between the third party and the person who possesses the right, in this case, the woman who is seeking the abortion, free of conflicts of interest generally, and that there's some obstacle preventing the actual person who possesses the right from asserting it. And there are lots of circumstances in which you can imagine that the abortion provider has an interest in not being regulated in a particular way that might be helpful for the woman. The the weird thing about all this is, ostensibly, these regulations are being passed that are supposed to make things safer for the the women when we all know that's a pretext and they don't really do much of that at all. But imagine in circumstances where that is true, you could have an abortion provider taking a different view. And so Alito was very taken with this argument. I think, you know, at the oral argument, got kind of incensed about it. Like, how can it be that they have the standing Justice Breyer points out, you know, I guess this is another issue relating to precedent and stare decisis. He counted no fewer than eight cases, uh, I think in the Supreme Court, where the providers sued on behalf of their patients and nobody had a problem with that. The other problem here is the last Women, obviously, right. Yes. Yeah, the last technical legal point is that the, that the Louisiana authorities, in connection with this litigation, didn't raise the standing point until very late in the process. Right, which, is, so a huge, which is huge. Yes, and also I think, you know, we talked about this before, but I think the fact that, you know, women are pregnant for, you know, you're pregnant nine months plus a few weeks, like, you know, you're, 
it's very hard to basically, obviously courts don't work that quickly. And so it's very hard to imagine um, the ability of women to sort of vindicate these rights easily. They could sue in advance of, you know, potentially saying that they might want to have an abortion. But like, it's a very unique set of circumstances in some ways because of- um, Time is of the essence. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So if if you don't have, particularly with some of the restrictions on- later term abortions, like, you know, these things have to be litigated now um, by the providers. Otherwise, it could it could restrict women's women's rights. Um, One other point I just want to make in in sort of closing on this is that it's not lost on me or on a lot of other legal commentators that the majority opinion is written by Justice Breyer, a man. He wrote the 2016 opinion. And so I think that makes sense in the sense of, you know, he's he's sort of sketched out this balancing test in whole women's health. Um, you know, what benefit does it have to women? What undue burden does it place? What obstacles does it place? So it, it's very common in the Supreme Court that the person who wrote the prior opinion will write the subsequent one. So in a lot of ways, that makes sense. And then, of course, the Roberts opinion and the concur- the sort of all the dissents, all the justices sort of want their say and they dissent. Some of them join uh, one dissent, but they all sort of want their own individual say on it. You know, all these opinions are written by the men on the court. Um, And it just, you know, it feels to me like there is a way in which we're moving toward abortion being severely restricted or overturned in our country. And the voices are, you know, in my view, not not the right voices that should be speaking. And again, I defer to Justice Breyer on that because he wrote previously. But I, I do think there's there's something about it that doesn't feel right to me. And I would just sort of note that. I'm not enough of an expert to understand who writes what. And you raise an interesting point. You know, people may forget that Ruth Bader Ginsburg came to the court with a particular expertise on these issues. And it was one of the issues in her confirmation hearing that she had worked on issues relating to reproductive rights and abortion. So I don't know, I don't know what it means that she's not one of the, that, that she didn't write the majority in either of those cases. And, you know, the other piece that's really interesting is, like, the way it works is that those four, the four liberal justices on the court, they need the fifth vote to be the majority opinion. And so there's a back and forth probably with Roberts as to what he would join and what he wouldn't join once he indicated that he would not rule that the law was unconstitutional. So who knows what the internal process is, but, you know, it it does... It does feel off to me to 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 just have it be men's voices and not women's voices yeah. as well. Should we, while we're on the subject of the Supreme Court and these very powerful nine individuals? Yes. Should we should we briefly address another matter in yes. a different area, although it still relates to health? Yes. Last Thursday, the uh, that the Trump administration asked the Supreme Court to overturn the Affordable Care Act, which basically provides health care to 23 million Americans today. There are 18 states. They were led by Texas that had brought suit against Health and Human Services. Um, And there were initially 20, and two of them dropped out after the midterm elections when those states turned from Republican to Democratic. These are, the 18 states are all Republican. And basically the argument is that in 2017, Congress, um, which was the Republican-controlled Congress, rendered the arguments that they made the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional because they zeroed out the tax penalty that was in the original law for not buying insurance, which is the sort of so-called individual mandate, meaning people were required to buy health insurance. If they didn't, there was a tax penalty that could be that could be put on them. And in 2017, the Republican Congress basically said, "There's, there's, we're going to zero that out. There is no tax penalty if you don't have insurance. And so what they have now done, the sort of 18, 18 states, is they've basically said that it's not just the... Um, 
the individual mandate, that that is also connected to other parts of the ACA, and that essentially once you zero that out, you're rendering the whole law unconstitutional because all three key parts of the ACA were wired together. So if you take one out, you're essentially taking all three out. And, you know, this is, this sort of comes at this fascinating moment in time, right? I mean, where there's a global pandemic, all these states, Texas included, are, you know, they're seeing increasing cases of coronavirus, COVID-19, and they're literally suing to basically, you know, ask the Supreme Court to say that the law is is invalid. Yeah, I mean, look, the standard legal principle that usually applies is that if you have a big, complicated law with lots and lots of provisions, even if it is the case that one provision is deemed to be unconstitutional, the court should do everything they can to preserve the rest of the law. Now, sometimes that's an impossibility because of how interrelated things are, but here it's not and doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think a lot of commentators think it would be you know, a, a drastic move as a legal and constitutional matter to invalidate the entire law. Yeah, and and remember also that the Supreme Court and Justice Roberts was was it with the majority on this one as well. Basically, upheld the prior litigation over the attempt to invalidate the ACA, and so there's already been a Supreme Court bite at this apple um, that was rejected. This is a very interesting argument. I I agree with you. You would think that if anything, they would just take out that one narrow piece of the law and allow the rest of the ACA to go forward. You know, when you talk about 23 million Americans, it just feels to me like, you know, we're talking about just a huge number of people who rely on the ACA for healthcare, And so it, it feels to me like a, a very political move to, to say at this moment in time. Um, and really, I think just uh, to me, it's it's a deeply troubling move. And I, I noted one of the um, Republican strategists, a guy named Joel White, said in a recent interview that, quote, he considered it pretty dumb to be talking about how we need to re- repeal Obamacare in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and I don't know if you had thoughts on that, but I, I sort of, I saw the filing and I was, I myself was also pretty surprised at this moment in time that this litigation is happening. You know, it's very peculiar how this administration deals with politics. Like on the one hand, depending on what the issue is, you could say there's something to be, there's something to be said that's positive about not caring about the polls, something is overwhelmingly popular, then then maybe you're pursuing a particular course of action based on principle in some way. I, I don't think Trump is doing that. There's something to be said for the argument that if an administration is doing something that's not so politically popular, maybe there's some principle involved. You know, on this issue of whether or not people should wear masks, which is, I know, a very different kind of issue, but it's, you know, in the public consciousness at the moment— the overwhelming majority of Americans believe that mask wearing is good and important and is helpful to stemming the pandemic. That may be an issue of, of weird, you know, vanity on the part of the president, or it's the case, and you and I've discussed this before, that with respect to the ACA and, and mask wearing and whatever other issue that he is pushing that's not popular, he cares about its popularity only with respect to some subset of the American voter, and that is his base, no one beyond his base. Even if things are generally popular, he will push the position that most resonates with his base, and that's it. He's never tried to be a president for anyone beyond his core voting base. And I think that's what's playing out here as well, even though it's the case, as you point out, that the position he's taking will help many members of his own base. Yeah. Will hurt, will yeah. hurt many members of we'll his own base. Will hurt many, yes. Will hurt, I think, will hurt. And a, a number of the states that are that are in the litigation, I think, are states where we're seeing upticks of the virus now. Um, one other point to make, which is there's a— 
up op-ed in, in the Washington Post by Neil Katyal that I thought he made a really important point that I just want to sort of stress, which is, you know, Neil writes, quote, how could a Congress that was unwilling to repeal the law have meant by removing one individual provision to undo its entire architecture from protection for individuals with pre-existing conditions to the creation of healthcare marketplaces? Even scholars who argued against the Affordable Care Act during the Obama administration have savaged this position with one National Review essay calling it troubling, trivial, and absurd. I think that's a really important point. The Congress didn't overturn the ACA. They basically, all they were successful in doing is zeroing out one of the sort of tax penalties. And so I think uh, Neil Katyal's point is a, is a good one, which is Congress didn't repeal it. They, you know, they basically removed one individual provision. So for the court to invalidate the whole act would be incorrect. And so yeah, I, it's an end run know, around Congress. It's, it's, yeah. it's an attempted use of the court, one branch of government, to do an end run around a second branch of government, the Congress. So let's move on from the Supreme Court. But I guess we're still going to talk about a court. This is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. In relation to the ongoing case and saga of former, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. So I think we said before, I think we had an episode where we kept saying everything about this case is bonkers. Yes. <laughs> both, the, both the conduct, the lies, the fact that he was you know, prosecuted, the, the fact that he pled guilty, and then sort of the unwinding and undoing of two guilty pleas, basically at the direction of Bill Barr and over the objections of some of the line people. And the trial court judge has come under attack by Michael Flynn's lawyers. They have both said that he should be disqualified from the case and, re, and the case should be reassigned. And also he should be forced to grant the motion to dismiss that's been brought by the Department of Justice. That's under this Rule 48A that we've talked about before. The Department of Justice says they don't think the lies were material. If they were lies, they can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And they have done this extraordinary thing and said, even though they have obtained two guilty pleas and other statements indicating guilt from Michael Flynn, that the case should be dismissed. They can't do it on their own. There actually is this rule that says you can only dismiss a case with leave of the court. And, and so Judge Emmett Sullivan in the district court said, hey, you know what? Not so fast. I want to get some more information on this. And as is his right under the rule, he can conduct some inquiry. And you and I speculated how long would that take. I have said throughout that at the end of the day, I think he has little choice but to accept the dismissal motion while still doing some inquiry. Well, in the meantime, Michael Flynn's lawyers went to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, one step up. It's the court between the district court and the, and the United States Supreme Court and filed what's called a writ of mandamus, which basically is a thing that would cause the, the D.C. Circuit Court to force the judge to dismiss the case, even though he has not reached a decision yet. Based on our understanding of the rules, you know, our experience in the courtroom and how the oral argument went, we thought there was really no chance that that would happen, that the D.C. Circuit Court would say, let's let Judge Sullivan you know, go about his business. And when there is something to appeal, like an adverse decision you don't like, then you come back to us. That's not what happened. By a two to one vote on that panel, they said basically that the district court was getting way over its skis and had to dismiss the case. And I guess the basic argument was, and we should talk about it, although rule 48A requires permission from the court for the Department of Justice to, to dismiss a case, any inquiry you do in connection with that is supposed to be circumscribed because the executive branch has all you know the basic authority in this area. And the, the majority opinion said, well, everything that Judge Sullivan is doing is not very circumscribed. He's asked for uh, amicus briefs from basically everyone. 
He appointed Judge Gleason, who may have a bias about what should happen here. And it looked like he was going to engage in a very broad, searching, scorched earth inquiry that's way out of bounds. We should shut him down. What do you think? Yeah, so this is, so first of all, we were completely wrong on, I think, where where this one ended up. But I think we were right on the substance, which is that this should never have been done in the way it was done. And I think this is a horrible opinion. I think you and I probably both sort of have these moments where we think, like, we really are worried for the rule of law. Like, this was one of those moments for me because it's a very political opinion. I think we should talk our way through it. It's a 2-1 decision. Judge Naomi Rao, we talked about her. She's worked in the White House Counsel's Office. Um, she was the administrator of information, um, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Trump administration. She was appointed in March 2019. She's like, you know, I think we talked about her as being extremely political. From what we've seen, she writes the opinion here, and she's joined by Karen Henderson, um, who's a George Herbert Walker Bush appointee. And there's a dissent written by Judge Wilkins, who was a, a Barack Obama appointment. So it sort of break da- breaks down on party lines. But the actual reasoning of the opinion is, in my view, terrible. The majority opinion, it is, it's it's just incorrect. Um, and part of that goes to, I think you and I both agree. I mean, ultimately, Judge Sullivan, I think, was going to allow the government to dismiss it. And there is something really weird here because the government is asking to dismiss it, right? And the sort of request for mandamus is brought by Michael Flynn and his lawyers. Um, yeah, and, not, but, and, that, and the point you're making, and not joined by the DOJ. DOJ is exactly. not seeking the mandamus, even though some of the injury that the D.C. Is Circuit theirs. Court is, is, the right. DOJ, is injury to the DOJ. And right. I think this is an important point because what the court really is doing is arguing for DOJ's power, right? They're arguing for the the power of the executive branch, which is really strange here because DOJ has not made this motion. It's made by Michael Flynn. He has no basis to argue the harm to, to the Department of Justice and the institutional harm. So basically, like, DOJ deserves the power to decide who they prosecute and when they dismiss indictments. So there's something really profoundly wrong about that. There's also something profoundly wrong about using mandamus to get there. It is, you know, this is one of my favorite definitions. It's an extraordinary remedy. And the Cheney case makes it clear you need, one, a clear and indisputable right to relief, meaning there's no question that this is the outcome that should come. Two, there's no other adequate means to attain the relief, which I think is really important to think about here because you just talked about the right to appeal. When people get decisions against them, which happens every day in America, the, the normal course is to appeal. And there has to be, like, Flynn had that here. You know, Judge Sullivan, had he had he made a ruling that was adverse to Flynn, and I agree with you, I don't think he would have at the end. I think he would have agreed to dismiss at the end. But had he made an, an adverse ruling, Flynn could have appealed. Um, and number three, the issuing court being satisfied that the writ is appropriate under the circumstances. It is a really, really high burden to get to mandamus. It is not something you use to shortcut or get out of uncomfortable court hearings that you don't want to see, which is essentially how the majority opinion feels like to me. And I think it's worth noting that one of the things the court has done here, and you and I have talked about this a couple of times, like we've talked about it with the Republicans in Congress not requiring the Trump administration to answer for subpoenas. Yes, they're helping the Trump administration if they say you don't have to answer for subpoenas, but ultimately they're hurting the institution that they belong to, Congress. And here you have basically a rule that says 
courts have to approve these dismissals and they have a right to inquire as to whether or not those dismissals are in the interest of justice. And so basically what the what the DC circuit has done is read that ability of courts to do that level of inquiry. And you and I have talked about it before. It's not often done, but there there's a decision where um, a court rejected a deferred prosecution agreement. I mean, there's a there's a a role for the courts to play in saying, is this in the interest of justice and is it fair? Um, and a hearing to be held to figure that out. And here they basically said, no hearings, no analysis. On its face, we're going to agree with the Department of Justice has made these arguments. It's not material. Um, you know, there's insufficient evidence and insufficient evidence is a classic reason why DOJ dismisses the majority rights. And so they basically bypass the existing process, the normal process in favor of just saying, nope, the case is going away and we're doing it. And so I, I found this to be really, really disheartening, both because I think the opinion is wrong on the law and also because it feels to me like exactly the opposite of what should happen and that courts should be sort of the bulwark against these types of abuses and, and things happening. And Yeah, here's the thing. I think the other problem here, and we're going to see this borne out in lots of cases in the future, the decision to take weird and extraordinary action on behalf of certain people who are associates of the president, whether you're talking about Stone or Flynn or Michael Cohen or others, or you're talking about a politically motivated thing with respect to the ACA, is that these things that the Department of Justice does or that they acquiesce in will cause a consequence. And the consequence will be that in other cases, garden variety cases where the Department of Justice has no interest in taking that kind of position, defense lawyers and other advocates will say, hey, look what happened with respect to that mandamus in the Flynn case. And lots more folks are going to seek mandamus now in circumstances where it would have been unthinkable before. So anytime you have a judge who looks like they're going to rule against your client's position, you don't wait for the decision and then seek an appeal. You go straight to mandamus. You go straight to the appeals court and you say, the judge is about to overstep uh, his or her bounds and they should be directed to do the thing that we want. And you've, you've, now, taken, you've now taken something that you've already described uh, as defined as a drastic and extraordinary remedy And almost by definition, by doing this, you have rendered it less extraordinary and less drastic, which will have a consequence for lots and lots of line attorneys in the Justice Department in other cases where they have no interest at all in giving any kind of leniency to somebody who's been convicted by a guilty plea, you know, once, much less twice. And remember that here, right, I mean, you're also letting the defendant basically raise the issue on mandamus, right, saying my case should be dismissed. And so the government, again, you know, what the court has allowed here is basically Michael Flynn to argue this is contrary to the Department of Justice's powers. Like, you're, you're, you're totally changing the dynamic that normally exists. And to your point, and I think it's worth just going back to this, mandamus is extraordinary, and it is used in times where you talked about a case related to child pornography where the judge was going to instruct the jury on something. That's a harm. If the judge makes that instruction, he was going to, I think, instruct on the sentences you talked about, Judge Lynch. Yes. Once that's done, you can't undo that. You can't have a jury unhear that the defendant could go to jail for X number of years because of child pornography. And I've seen it done before where it's the a case is moving forward to trial and the decision has to be made then because the harm that will result, you can't undo it, right? You would have to have a whole new trial at or again, of course, you and I know if, the, if there's an acquittal in a case, the government can't can't bring charges again, the same charges. And so you really, when you see mandamus used, it's really because this is like the only chance you have to get review of something 
or else it goes away. Here, that's not the case. Michael Flynn was waiting to be sentenced. He wanted his case dismissed. The judge was going to have a hearing. Michael Flynn is not incarcerated at this moment in time. Like, there's no, there's no harm that you could point to other than having to wait a little bit longer with this hearing and then an appellate process. And so it really is shifting the use of mandamus. And frankly, for a court, the D.C. Circuit has not been, historically, has not granted mandamus. And so, you know, you know I think— You know why that is. You know why that is. Why? Because it's an extraordinary remedy. Yeah. I just wanted to say extraordinary again. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is an extraordinary episode. By the way, one other thing about like like the the actual majority opinion, it basically adopts Michael Flynn's arguments in a lot of ways that I found troubling also. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there was a lot of language from you know, we should go back to this and just sort of the history of this like you know, Michael Flynn, as you noted, he he pled guilty, he pleaded guilty twice in a court of law. He um, accepted responsibility. He was going to cooperate and testify against one of his um, colleagues. And, you know, all this happened. Then his case was put over for sentencing because the judge didn't think the government had asked for basically a non-incarceratory sentence. And Judge Sullivan was upset about that. And we end up in this place where Sidney Powell, who's a prominent, who's a prominent lawyer, is on TV. She's talking about all these things. She ends up representing Michael Flynn. She has five conversations with President Trump about this case. She writes a letter to Bill Barr that is just, you know, sort of been released publicly, but basically saying like, why don't we have somebody, you know, we think that this is an unjust prosecution. Why don't you have somebody investigate? And Bill Barr, as we know, has a U.S. attorney go out and do this investigation, dig up material that we've talked about the FBI does not disclose in the normal course, release that material. And then here we are with the court at a point where the court is actually using the language of Sidney Powell's motions to dismiss in terms of materiality and insufficient evidence. And it's, it really just, like, it just, this one made my blood boil because it felt super political, really not based in law, a terrible precedent to set with the use of mandamus. And, you know, my sort of personal view is that this whole Flynn thing needs to be investigated if the administration changes. Like, it doesn't have to be a criminal investigation into wrongdoing, but somebody needs to actually understand what was happening here and why, because it feels so— you want, so you want to have an, you want to have investigators investigate the investigators? I do. I, I We're know. investigating the investigators. <laughs> I know. I know. It's wrong. It's wrong to have so many investigations. But this feels to me like there's something here. Like, it, it feels to me like when you get to the point where the judiciary feels— compromised in this way. I just, I don't, I don't really know what else to do other than to basically say like, you know, one of my other favorite parts, I think you'll probably appreciate this too, is like the majority opinion writes that they're, they're talking about Judge Sullivan and they're upset that he's appointed Judge Gleason and he's having these hearings and he's allowing the public to have amici, like to have people write opinions and, and sort of provide information to the court. Um, and they say, quote, he relied on news stories, tweets, and other facts outside the record to contrast the government's grounds for dismissal here with its rationales for prosecution in other cases. I mean, like, the president is tweeting on the case, and you're not allowed to consider that. Feels just like, you know, they want this to be hermetically sealed to what Bill Barr wants to have happen. Yeah, and well, just- Judge, Wilkins, Judge Wilkins makes the point in the dissent that it is true that there is a presumption of regularity as to how the Department of Justice conducts itself. But as, as Judge Wilkins writes, the majority transformed the presumption of regularity into an impenetrable shield. And there's a lot of irregular stuff. You have a presumption, but what a presumption means in the law is, yeah, the default position is that things are regular. The default position is X, but the presumption can be overridden by other facts. And nothing about 
how the Department of Justice has conducted itself in this case and the undoing of the guilty plea and the undoing of the case seems seems regular. And and at, at a minimum, it's not irrational to find that the presumption of regularity is tested here. Um, you know, maybe it's the case that the district court judge, you know, by engaging in the hiring of counsel and the appointment of former Judge Gleason, you know, angered the court because that was extraordinary. But as we keep saying, like every single irregular every thing. Every part of this is, yeah. Every irregular thing gets met with even more irregularity. And you sort of get a spiraling set of circumstances with respect to irregularity. Now, we should point out to folks that this is not over, but there's some confusion about this. The decision that we don't like came out two to one by a three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. There is a right for the, the issue to be held by the full court. There are 11 current judges on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. As I understand it, the district court judge can ask for that vote, and it would require six of the 11 judges to say, yeah, we need to hear the whole, we need to hear the case as a whole body. Or I, th- I think any of the individual judges on the court can ask for it as well. And all the speculation in the immediate aftermath of this decision was that that would quickly happen. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm missing people, something. It hasn't. Me too. It yeah, hasn't me happened too. yet. Because almost all the legal folks that we listen to and follow and, and regard highly basically said the same thing, which is that there'll be, a, there'll be an en banc hearing. What's interesting also is, you know, we just looked at the breakdown of the court, seven Democrats, four Republicans. And, you know, this was a pretty party line decision. I don't like to think about courts like this, but this really is, you know, this decision has a lasting impact on the D.C. Circuit and on mandamus. Um, And the D.C. Circuit is really seen as the sort of second highest court in the land after the Supreme Court. And so it's an important ruling. Um, And Granted, it's extraordinary in some ways, but it's also setting a precedent that I think, you know, as you said, like defense lawyers are going to be able to argue this and it's going to change the way um, mandamus is used and viewed and frankly, what authority the court has in overseeing. Um, And by the way, we should just note this. The court also, like this is a space where in terms of dismissals, you know, there's this, this law that basically says the court has the right to see if it's in the interest of justice. You know, there are also, the courts also oversee the acceptance of pleas and sometimes reject pleas. So it is right now this narrow question of can the Department of Justice dismiss it, but there are repercussions for what involvement a court can have over decisions made by the executive branch. Like if the government decides to issue a plea and the court finds that it's not supported by the facts or that there was coercion in that plea or that there's a problem with it, as a rule, courts reject it. And so like we're sort of pushing down a slope that I think is a bad one and that has potential repercussions outside of this one narrow case. And so I would expect the D.C. Circuit to have taken it on, on bank, but I would have expected them to have done it already. So it feels that was last Wednesday. It's almost a week gone by. Um, yeah, I think what do you think it time, means? I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes I, um, I'm happiest to proclaim ignorance because I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I mean, it could be, it could be that, the, that the district court judge wants one of the other other judges to do it but I don't, I don't see I don't see what is to be lost by asking for for on back look maybe there's maybe there's behind the scenes discussion which I don't think is inappropriate and it happens and maybe someone's whipping the vote because just because you ask for on back doesn't mean you get it like you know a majority of the judges have to agree to hear it and then they hear the matter and then they vote on the matter yeah and and the rule of the court specifically says, an on-bank hearing or rehearing is not favored and ordinarily will not be ordered unless, one, 
unbanked consideration is necessary to secure or maintain uniformity of the court's decisions, or two, the proceeding involves a question of exceptional importance. I think you meet one or both of those criteria. But here's another example of a thing, right, where each each thing that's happened in the case has been <laughs> extraordinary and is not favored, right? Moving to dismiss the case, the underlying conduct, the the, the seeking of the writ of mandamus, what now I think needs to happen is yet another unusual, disfavored thing, which is the hearing of the, of the matter with respect to the entire court on bank. So, you know, I think there are more cycles to go here. Um, I agree with those who say that it must be true if the entire court hears it, that it will go the other way. It will go in favor yep. of the district court Agreed. judge. But yes. you never know. Um, there are lots of twists and turns here. Can I say two other things? I mean, I think one thing that that we should really leave people with is the fact that what the D.C. Circuit is saying is that the district court can't even hold a hearing. And I think there's fair criticism against Judge Sullivan for picking Judge Gleason, for having somebody come in. That That is an unusual thing to look at whether Flynn should be charged with contempt. Like you and I talked about the Gleason piece after he wrote the op-ed. It felt, it felt sort of strange to then put somebody who'd already made a public um, declaration of what, what they thought should happen in that role. Um, and so I, I think Judge Sullivan has made some missteps, but it still feels to me like there's a huge problem without letting the process play out, without letting the inquiry play out and seeing where it goes. And, you know, process is really important. And you know, this feels to me like a complete undercutting of that process in order to reach the desired end, and that's wrong. The last point, which I think is is worth just sort of bringing out, is that um, Marty Lederman, he's a professor at Georgetown, has made a really interesting argument, and you know, basically is is saying like this is all about the Mueller investigation and the effort by Bill Barr on the president's attempt to sort of whitewash it away. And so Lederman writes. Quote, finally, one can't help but wonder whether this abrupt action, the dismissal in the D.C. Circuit, is intended to bolster the attorney general's campaign to undermine the legitimacy of the Russia investigation more broadly. Here, not only by discrediting a perfectly legitimate component of the special counsel's investigation, but also by ratifying Attorney General Barr's revisionist history that there was nothing for the law enforcement and intelligence communities to be concerned about in early 2017 after they learned what Flynn said in his phone calls with Russian ambassador Kislyak. And so I, I think it's worth just noting, like, if you just look at it narrowly as a court decision, like you can have the exact conversation we just had about why it's wrong. But if you look at it more broadly and the overall impact that it has is that, again, it's an exoneration of Flynn. It leads to this point of basically finding FBI misconduct and a lack of materiality. They shouldn't have done this in the first place. It really it really goes to the heart of this argument that President Trump has repeatedly made that this was a witch hunt and that he should never have been looked at, which, of course, I know you and I both very strongly disagree with. But it's, it's I think, important that Letterman sort of focuses on it that way. That's a good segue to something we should talk about briefly before we end, and that is you know, overall politicization of various cases at DOJ. We had extraordinary testimony in the House Judiciary Committee last week by a couple of people who work, in the, who work in the Department of Justice, one of whom I think most extraordinarily, an overused word during this episode, but I think appropriately so, Aaron Zielinski, who is a sitting assistant U.S. attorney in Maryland, in the District of Maryland, who was on the special counsel's team, the Mueller team, uh, and then continued as uh, a designated assistant U.S. attorney, a special assistant U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia to see through the end of the Roger Stone case he is one of four people who withdrew from the case after Bill Barr sort of imposed his view 
that the sentencing recommendation made by the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. was too harsh. And you and I have talked about this at length. You can have an argument about whether or not the recommendation was too harsh or not. I tended to think that it was a little longer than maybe made sense under the circumstances. That's a different question from whether or not the Attorney General of the United States imposes his own view in the circumstance that looks like favorable treatment to someone for what reason? Only because he's an associate of the President of the United States. And AUSA Zelensky testified before Congress that he heard from multiple people that the reason this was happening was that there was favorable treatment because of Roger Stone's connection to the president. And so you can like what he said or not like what he said, but I think it's a pretty brave thing for someone who's within the department and knows he's going to make angry the person at the head of the department to speak what he believed to be the, the truth. And, you know, we'll talk about, you know, more about what he said. But until we know what other kinds of cases Bill Barr has interjected himself into or interceded in, the public record is what? That he has gotten involved on Roger Stone, associate of the president. He's gotten involved with Michael Flynn, former staffer to and associate of the president. We now have a New York Times article that said, although it was too late to really undo, he made some efforts to reign in the Southern District of New York with respect to who? Michael Cohen, associate of the president of the United States. Now, maybe he's going uh, around the country and there are you know, garden variety drug cases that he's also interceding in. But my hunch is that's not true. And it's, it's just odd to me why in the current climate you would go out of your way, put your own reputation for independence, such as it was, on the line to keep interceding in a very dramatic and extraordinary way on behalf of people who are close to the president. And maybe it goes to what and you were saying a minute ago. It, it's also not done. Yeah. Remember John Durham's investigation into oh, yeah. this sort of yeah, so, 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 so maybe the yeah. maybe the theme is not not so much – well, maybe the, the unifying principle is he just wants to undercut everything that went on with respect to the Russia investigation and all of its tentacles and all of its, you know, tributaries. And that's what he's doing. But it really smacks of something, you know, ugly and unfortunate in the Justice Department if you care about the appearance, at least, of equal application of the law, right? Yeah. I mean, I, look, Zelensky was asked whether he agreed with his statement made by, made by one of the other prosecutors, Jonathan Kravis. It was one of the Stone prosecutors who basically wrote in an op-ed. Mr. Zelensky, your colleague Jonathan Kravis, who was also assigned to, Roger, to the Roger Stone case, resigned from the department after 10 years because he said, quote, he believed the department had abandoned its responsibility to do justice in the Roger Stone case. Mr. Zelensky, do you agree with that assessment? I do. Zelensky basically says he agrees with it. He says that, the, you know, his supervisor, who he identifies as J.P. Cooney, had said that the U.S. attorney had political reasons for his instructions um, and that the supervisor agreed it was unethical and wrong. And so really he's, he's road mapping that the decisions that were being made. And look, you and I have both said this. You could agree or disagree on the level of sentences, on the number, like people debate how many years someone should be sentenced to all the time. And that's a legitimate debate. What's not legitimate is if it's done because of politics. And what Zelensky is saying here is that this was politics. And he was told by his supervisor that it was politics. 
And so it's exactly what I think we've all feared, but it feels, and we, you and I have been sort of saying, okay, well, here are the pieces of evidence that lead us to believe that this is what happened. You know, Jesse Liu, the D.C. U.S. attorney, was pushed out. Tim Shea, Barr's, um, one of Barr's right hands in the Department of Justice, who worked in the front office with Barr's, put in um, to oversee the case. So there was a lot of what I would almost call circumstantial evidence that this is what was happening. But then I think it's different to have someone like Aaron Zelinsky walk in and say, this is what happened. Even as it was happening, I was being told we were doing it for political reasons. It just, it's just, it's sort of all these things we knew, but to have the person inside say it, it changes it. And I think it's, it's really important that it's going to get lost a little bit. And, you know, we're in the middle of a, you know, a national global pandemic, like we're in the middle of all these other things happening, but it's really important that like, he's really calling a flag on the play. Like, and he was saying at the time, this was political. Um, So I think that's really important. You've got also at that hearing, Don Ayer, who was the deputy attorney general under George Herbert Walker Bush and a lifelong conservative, as far as I know, who said the following. I am here because I believe that William Barr poses the greatest threat in my lifetime to our rule of law and to public trust in it. That's not a small thing for a person like that to be saying. And that's the impression that Bill Barr is giving a lot of people. One question, Preet, is, so I think, you know, I think you're right to point out Donald Ayer. I mean, we, Zelensky, do you think that it's going to make a difference? Like, so I sort of think we're like, we're moving towards this point in time where Bill Barr is about to go to the microphone with John Durham, the Connecticut U.S. attorney, and say the initiation, the beginning of the Mueller investigation, even though it's been signed off on by the inspector general of the Department of Justice, even though, you know, we've seen the full Mueller report come out. But Barr is going to question that, right? It's going to be, and and they've even talked about prosecuting people related to the beginning of the investigation of the president and the Trump campaign. So does this matter? Like, does the fact that there's been this congressional hearing, is that going to change? Like, will Barr not go to the mic? Or is this just, you know? No, I don't think Bill Barr cares what anyone thinks. I think he's, um, you know, there are a lot of words that have been used to describe him. And I was wrong about him when he was first nominated. But, but a word that has been used and should be used more often is arrogance. I mean, the arrogance of how he goes about doing his job, the arrogance of how he thought he was going to oust with a lie, the Southern, the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney Jeff Berman, the arrogance with which he said at his confirmation hearing, no, I'm not going to accept what the ethics officials say about recusal. I'm going to make that decision. I mean, everything through and through that he does is not only... Uh, in some cases, weird uh, and, and or unethical and or misleading, but it's it's suffused with an extreme and I think in that position, unprecedented arrogance. I know best. I know what I'm doing. I can second guess you. And I actually don't care if it looks like I'm doing the bidding of the president. I don't care if it looks like I'm not independent because I know best. And that's a, I, that's a, one of the most terrible qualities in a leader. There's no modesty. There's no humility whatsoever in how he undertakes his job. Yeah, to that point, in an NPR interview recently, he said, you know, he was being questioned by Steve Inskeep about like, you know, look, is it appropriate to intervene at the highest levels in these cases, right? Like what you're doing. And Barr responds basically saying, all the cases in the Department of Justice are subject to the supervision of the attorney general. 
In fact, all the powers carried out by the department are vested in the attorney general, and it's appropriate for the attorney general to exercise super, supervisory authority. Basically, he's saying, like, you know, in his world, the president is supreme, but in, like, is number one, but the AG has full authority over any case. And he goes on to sort of cloak what he's doing in, like, it, and this was just, like, incredible to me, but he basically says it's very important that the attorney general make sure that there's no political influence at stake involved in any cases, when that is exactly, in my view, what he's doing is he is exerting political influence on these cases. And he's arguing, oh, my job is I have authority over everything. And what I'm trying to do is make sure that there's no politics in it when he's actually doing the exact opposite. He's putting politics into all of this. If he just let the cases go on without inter, you know, without interceding in them, that's the surest way. You have line attorneys, line prosecutors, line agents, people who do this all the time. They follow rules and guidelines. They decide when cases should be brought based on fact and evidence without political intervention. That's how you know that there isn't political interference. When you have the attorney general trying to question and undo the Cohen case, changing the sentence um, recommendation for Stone, dismissing the case in Flynn, now you know also having John Durham do this investigation to the initiation, despite other um, reports coming out, like it all feels so political, and yet yeah, look, people should understand that some of what Bill Barr says is is correct. It's a correct statement of the hierarchy to some extent, right? In the same way that I had you know final authority on any case brought by the Southern District of New York, you know he has that authority as the as the Attorney General. That doesn't mean, though, that I shouldn't have been criticized if I decided, given that I have that authority, that in a selective way, I'm going to reach down into, into cases at a lower level in my office that generally are not directly supervised by the U.S. attorney and only picked out the ones that had some political implication or might affect a friend of mine or some other person I'm associated with or a relative of mine and said, hey, What's going on here? Are you sure you want to bring that case and putting the kibosh on one of those cases just because I have the overall authority? Sure. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it ethical. It doesn't make it good. And in my experience as U.S. attorney, look, I got into altercations verbal with with the attorney general on, on a number of occasions. I won't go into those here. And there are times where, you know, we disagreed or it was a, a sensitive case to national security or related to foreign policy. That was true with the Russian spies case, whose 10th anniversary, by the way, just came last week. It was true with respect to the Indian diplomat that we charged. It was true with respect to some of the you know, international bank cases that we charged. There's a back and forth, and there can be differences of opinion. And the attorney general might have a view and wanted to know what we were doing, what was going on. I will say, though, that with respect to political corruption cases we brought, high-profile Democrats in the state, also Republicans, I never got a call from either of the attorneys general who served when I, were, when, I was, when I was the United States attorney. And that's how it should be. Because, if you, because, because it looks like, even if it's in good faith, it looks like political meddling. Hey, what are you doing with respect to Sheldon Silver? Because maybe Sheldon Silver has some connection to the White House uh, or some other prominent Democrat we were investigating. I can never understand why someone in a position like the attorney general position wants to risk looking political by interfering or meddling in a local political case or some other kind of political case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you said it perfectly. I mean, the attorney general has the power to intervene, um, but that power should be used fairly and justly for the better good of the public and the people and not for political goals. And it is, 
it is astonishing, I think, to both you and I to think about anyone using their power in this way. Um, it, you know, if anything, you or I would think that the prosecutions, if we were sitting in Bill Barr's chair, we would think that, you know, you should have less involvement with prosecutions of the president's associates, right? It would be like, the sign would be like, let those let those cases be handled by the career people, let them be overseen by the people who oversee them, like, let me not touch them to make sure that there is no influence that's unduly used. And again, I think we've had I think we've had this conversation a lot of times, even with like, you know, the firing of Comey, like Trump's number one argument was, I have the power to do it. The the president can fire the FBI director. Yes, that's true, but you can't do it for the wrong reasons. You can't do it to cover up an investigation. You know, Bill Barr can call any U.S. attorney and ask them about a case. That's true, but you can't do it for the wrong reasons. You can't do it to cover up an investigation or to like kill a case. You know, I, I use the extreme example in response to folks who say, well, the, the beginning and the end of the argument is the president has the authority to do something. And I say, you know, the president also has the authority to nuke Canada. Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's proper. Exactly. You know, the people, yeah. people who just make that argument are not thinking very deeply. And I don't yes. argue with them for very long. Yes. But I think it's important just to sort of acknowledge that, like, you know, what's happening and where we are is it is I don't want to use the word extraordinary again. <laughs> you can. But I sort of feel like, you know, what what we've seen from Bill Barr, and I worry a lot about this, Preet, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but whoever becomes the next AG is going to have an unbelievably Herculean task of trying to repair the department. I mean, you probably get the same calls I do. I have people I have known who've been there for their whole career who are among the best lawyers I've ever known, and they don't want to be there. Like, they don't feel good about their work, and that is— you know, it's devastating for, you know, for even the people who are carrying out the law, like following the facts and the law where it takes them, like to feel bad about working at the department. It just, you know, it's a really, really sad day. And it's a really, really terrible thing for the rule of law. All right. So we've got, so we had a lot of issues to talk about. Supreme Court, Department of Justice. We're still in the middle of a pandemic that raises issues. We have an election coming up. There are voting issues that we're going to need to talk about. So get some rest, stay safe, and we'll talk next weekend. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. That's it for this week's Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community. 